Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Smith. In this week's episode, Aspie's Kelsey Monroe and Michael Shoebridge discuss the ongoing protests across Hong Kong and the United States. And he's willing to sacrifice the economic benefit to remove that horrible fear of contagion of freedom into the mainland. And Aspie's Leanne Close talks to Stephen Stevens, president of the International Association of the Chiefs of Police, about policing reform across the US. Any law enforcement officer in this country who didn't think that that was horrific should turn in their badge right now. But first, Aspie researcher Genevieve Feely speaks to Robert Baird, English editor at Totoli News, about recent political developments in Timor-Leste, including the challenge of a failed state budget and the country's COVID-19 response. So today we're going to be discussing the recent rumblings in Timorese politics and COVID-19 in Timor. So we've got Robert Baird here today, and thank you so much for joining us on Policy, Guns and Money. Um, Maybe to start off, I think listeners would probably love to get an overview of the last six months in Timor. It hasn't really made the news here, but it's been pretty wild over there. Um, There's been a lot going on, a failed budget, ministerial resignations, and now a new coalition. So how did this all start and what implications does it have for the young republic? Well, I'd like to start with um, uh, last month and the table being literally turned over and broken in half in the in the parliament building i guess that was uh, the com- culmination of about two years of ructions within the country the the conflict on that occasion was rival parties trying to oust uh, shanana guzmao's cnrt appointed a speaker of the parliament they decided they no longer had confidence in him and they'd realized that they'd finally got the numbers together to get rid of him the last gasp effort to stop that happening, uh, stop uh, Arau Amaral from being ousted from the seat, was to physically stop the deputy speakers from taking the chair. And so that's what they, why the table ended up, ended up getting, being tipped over. And in this amazingly chaotic scene where people were shouting and shoving each other, they managed to still hold a vote and eventually uh, vote out the president of the parliament. But to go back to January, you've got um, on the uh, second occasion... First of all, uh, last year, the budget for 2020, because they're not in, um, uh, they're in calendar years in, in Timor, uh, was formally rejected by the parliament, including with the help of supposed coalition partners, CNRT. So it was a real sort of slap in the face for those arrangements. And it led the prime minister to, first of all, say, well, the coalition's dead. So the country had no leadership. And then uh, within the weeks to come, realizing that he'd lost the majority and he resigned. but. COVID-19 seems to have changed uh, all of that because uh, immediately the, there was a state of emergency issued within about uh, one or two weeks. The president um, decreed that, which brought in some pretty extraordinary measures to, to close off the borders, to uh, halt public transport and really uh, respond to uh, something that had a lot of Timorese spooked, I suppose, at the time. And uh, I mean, it's fair to say that within that time, the, um, the, the country... I think the response to COVID really showed how well the bureaucracy and the po- politics can function when there's a crisis. And within that leadership, the Prime Minister decided, well, uh, I'm going to rescind my resignation because I have a job to do. Uh, and besides, the President had never supported it. And um, the minor parties, for their own reasons, decided to then uh, ship their loyalties back to um, the Prime Minister. So there, there you have it. In the space of uh, two months, the um, the sort of coup by stealth by Shanana Guzmao's CNRT was dead in the water. 
So is there a particular history to these rivalries? Have there been crises like this before between the parties? Well, I, I hesitate to delve into it. Um, well, when I do delve into it, the trouble is these things are matters of shifting loyalties. Uh, key to getting the um, government majority back was uh, the Fretilin Party, which as uh, would be very familiar to, to listeners of this podcast, you know, the history goes back to the resistance movement. But more recently, you've got a party that was in government in 2017, an absolute failed government that just couldn't um, deliver and then had to be another election in 2018. They found themselves uh, in opposition. But their their enmity between uh, PLP, the governing party of Taumatan Ruak, the uh, Prime Minister and Fredlin seems to have um, have disappeared when it comes to the, the pragmatic uh, circumstances. And now you find that you've got senior members of Fredlin in the ministry once more. So it's now effectively a PLP-Fredlin uh, partnership. And there's this really interesting side note, which is the Kunto Party, which has been around for a number of years. It was a, a youth-focused party. It's got, an uh, uh, well, compared to the other parties, an overrepresentation of women, the leader is a woman, who's now the Deputy Prime Minister. So it's interesting how well they played their hand after turning their back on Shana, Shana Guzman's party. Yeah, it's interesting to have so many different players. Um, I think it's yeah. so much more complicated than what we see here in Australia as well. Um, <laughs> and to go back to COVID-19, like all this drama was unfolding in the midst of a pandemic. What's the situation been with COVID-19 and Timor? Have there been a lot of cases or they've kind of come out of it unscathed? Um, and have all this politics kind of detracted from the pandemic response? Or I think that th- that it really was front of mind for uh, for the Timorese. They when, when the news of Timorese students being trapped in Wuhan, that was probably the first time that Timor realised this thing really affects us. Is the students were among many who were trapped in that city lockdown. They were eventually repatriated with the help of the New Zealand government. Um, but I think that led to a real amount of fear spreading around because there's, there's a very low level of um, knowledge about how viruses spread in, in Timor. There, there were even riots outside the quarantine sites as the, as the health authorities tried to set them up. This, inevitably, we'll need quarantine sites and they had to send the riot police into one of those sites. But a couple of months later, uh, there were 24 patients. They've all recovered. They're mostly young. Most of them are students. There hasn't been an active case within the country for a month now, which is absolutely remarkable. Key to that really is closing the borders. So how to allow that cross-border trade that's so important for those people that live near the uh, Okusi and the, um, the Batugade border, and how, to, how to slowly reopen that without bringing those cases in from Indonesia, it's, it's not clear. But it's worth pointing out, I mean, it's been a highly successful a response to COVID, but they didn't they didn't do it alone. A lot of this support came from aid partners who have been really, really intimately involved. I mean, the WHO has been uh, involved from early on. They were donating PPE and running seminars on how to um, uh, how to how to manage um, infections. It's an interesting sort of um, watching the different partners play their different roles because the role of China, for example was to just donate things from the very beginning. They were donating infrared scanners at the border. They were donating masks and gowns um, and just, just sort of being uh, and, and, and really getting uh, a lot of Timor excited about it. It's fair to say it was a sort of PR coup. They had these um, 
branded airplanes flying in goods from, uh, for example, last uh, two weeks ago, the Jack Ma Foundation and Alibaba Foundation, uh, who've got together and they've donated massive amounts of this uh, PPE equipment. Whereas the other effort, probably the other counterpoint to that, is is AusAid, is, is DFAT. They've um, set aside an extra $10 million to respond to COVID. Uh, much of that is going towards sort of stimulus measures. But a lot of the in-kind support has been really crucial. I mean, the, the Menzies Foundation out of Darwin has this very close relationship with the National Laboratory. They were helping ferry the test uh, swabs back to the Royal Darwin Hospital to make sure that the results were verified. But at the same time, they were helping teach what is apparently a very, very difficult thing to do, which is to test for COVID-19. It's a difficult thing for a developing country to develop those capabilities. And they're actually now testing independently. They don't have to send their results off uh, to be double-checked. And and I think for a country of its sort of development status, that's quite a remarkable thing. Mm, That's fantastic. And just the amount of cases they have really, maybe even they could be part of a travel bubble that gets talked about between Australia and New Zealand. It'd be fantastic to see that kind of open up. There's been speculation of including uh, Bali but uh, because that's one of the key um, uh, entry points other than Darwin mm-hmm. and Jakarta. But uh, it remains to be seen how the uh, virus will progress there, I suppose. Mm. And, yeah, you talk about the West Timorese border there as well. So that's still completely closed down? Yes. Well, it's, it's as closed down as officials can get a border to close. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you go to... Um, the town of uh, Maliana, for example, where you, you cross the river bed there, and it's, it's widely known the border is very porous in that area because you've got people who rely on that cross-border trade just to put food on the table. Uh, and, and, and among those, those are the people who are not only uh, quite highly at risk because they've got underlying conditions, a lot of them, but they're also people who are less likely to know much about COVID whatsoever. So the government... Um, has, they've sent some um, NGO delegations out there to talk to the people and and work out you know why why it is that they keep crossing illegally. The, the Timorese do not have the resources to monitor that border outside of a small patch near the official uh, zones. But officially, yes, there is only uh, exceptional circumstances allowed, like bringing um, you know food and goods in from Indonesia or medicine. Those are the only reasons you're supposed to be able to cross the border. Same goes for the flights as well. Uh, you can get uh, uh, the World Food Program's been running f- uh, flights in, uh, but they've been very careful. They've been spraying all sorts of things with disinfectant and not taking any chances because they've had such success so far. Yeah, and it's such great news. Um, mm. Perhaps to finish off on, aside from the political contestation of the pandemic, what other kind of key political issues are playing out in Timor right now? It's all about money, I suppose, because, as we mentioned before, the budget hasn't passed. I mean, it's difficult to underestimate just how um, significant it is when you have a... um when you have government spending slowdown, there is no, there is still um, government services running, of course. And what they do when they don't have a budget passed, unlike the United States that grinds to a halt, they have a, a duodecimal system where they chop up last year's budget in twelve and pass it one month at a time. That allows basic services to keep running. But uh, as we've learnt over the last few months, it's things like medicine that really suffer. If you want, if you're um, in charge of importing medicine and you want to stockpile 12 months worth of something, you can't do that on a 12 month by month basis. And so you're effectively a smaller buyer than you used to be and you can buy fewer medicines. So it's, it's a significant problem. 
the World Bank's done a fair bit of research on the Timorese economy, and they f- they found the last time the country was in recession, which was only last year, it was because of that. Uh, slow down in government spending. Hopefully, that will be now be resolved with the new majority. Touch wood. Mm. Uh, they they want to move forward, and of course, they've got next year's budget to think about as well. But more importantly, it's the fact that they're so reliant on their petroleum fund. It's going to be running down because the the revenue coming in from the Bayer Undan oil field is going to drop, and Timor has this gap between, <laughs> pardon the pun, uh, between what's coming in now, which is going to decline, and their future fields, which are uncertain, which is the greater sunrise revenues. And a lot of that depends on the, the negotiations about where they're going to be refining the oil. The Timorese government is still pushing ahead with uh, the Tasimane project, which would have the oil refined on site. And I don't think you could find any oil CEO who thinks that that's a good idea. Uh, but it leads it leads to that gap. They're, they're spending more than is sustainable from that fund, and it will be dry, running dry if they don't come up with uh, a better um, uh, better way of funding it. But let's put it in perspective. So the government budget was proposed and rejected at about 1.6 billion US dollars. It's quite a small change by Australian standards. But you compare that to say their second biggest export, coffee. Non-oil revenue is next to nothing. They really uh, are heavily reliant on that petroleum fund, and it's a great resource for them for now, but there, there needs to be a plan B. Mm, for sure. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Robert. It's kind of it's really great to learn a little bit more about one of our closest neighbours, who I definitely don't think gets enough media attention here in Australia. No, it's a fantastic country. It's a shame the borders are closed, because I would highly Lucky recommend uh, spending some time there. Thanks so much. Next... Senior Aspie analyst Kelsey Monroe speaks to Michael Shoebridge, director of Aspie's Defence Strategy and National Security Program, about the protests in Hong Kong and the United States. Michael, we're talking today about the extraordinary civil unrest we're seeing simultaneously in Hong Kong against Beijing's increasingly heavy hand in the city, but at the same time in dozens of US cities over another death of an unarmed black man at the hands of police. You know, very different root causes, of course, but some really interesting parallels too. So it's about a year since the major wave of protests in Hong Kong started um, and just a couple of weeks after Beijing made its kind of decisive answer to those mass protests. The National People's Congress in Beijing moved to impose a national security law on Hong Kong that would effectively end the one country, two systems formula by undermining the judicial independence and, and legislative autonomy of the city and also permit mainland secret police to set up openly in Hong Kong with likely quite dire consequences for the personal liberties of Hong Kongers, among other major consequences. So what I'm really interested in your take on is why, what is Beijing's calculus here? Why have they decided that now is the time to make this move on Hong Kong? Mm, well, I think this is a fascinating question because from the outside, it looks like the single dumbest time for <laughs> Beijing to do this. Uh, the pandemic has paralysed China's domestic economy. Uh, consumption has collapsed and that's because people aren't getting out and about and there's job insecurity, and both those things mean you don't spend money. We're seeing some of that here in Australia. And Hong Kong has historically been a real economic positive for Beijing. It's been uh, at the front door for foreign investment into mainland China, and it's been an economic powerhouse in its own right. So you would think keeping that golden goose 
healthy on laying those golden eggs would be more important now than ever before. But I think what we're seeing with the national security laws that Beijing is imposing on Hong Kong is that Xi Jinping is prioritising the party and the party's rule and security over economics. And he sees Hong Kong as a radioactive example to the mainland Chinese population of freedom, uh, freedom and democracy being a path to success. And he's willing to sacrifice the economic benefit to remove that horrible fear of contagion of freedom into the mainland. Yeah, because Hong Kong is, isn't it, and, and Taiwan, sort of the perfect kind of counterfactual to that that sense of uh, that ethno-nationalist sense of Chinese um, authoritarianism is the natural way of governance for the Chinese people, and and Taiwan and Hong Kong really give the lie to that. Idea. I think that's the point. And if you look at the history of uh, Xi as the leader of China, he really has reasserted centrality of the party. He's done that across Chinese government institutions, across state-owned enterprises and across private companies, including some of the world's most successful technology firms. So his arc of leadership is to reassert centrality of party control. And that's the way to look at Hong Kong. He wants to assert the centrality of party control over the seven and a half million people in Hong Kong. And China likes to say that Hong Kong is a sort of domestic issue, but it's got global implications, Beijing's move against Hong Kong. Well, Beijing says this and knows it's not true at the same time. (laughs) So there's a reason that a joint declaration had to be signed by the governments of the United Kingdom and China back in 1984. And that's because this is an international issue. And Beijing at that time made serious binding commitments in the face of the world community uh, to the United Kingdom government about the treatment and status of Hong Kong around its legal system and its independence of the mainland systems that was to last for 50 years starting in 1997. Beijing is now breaking its word and breaking those binding international commitments it made. So of course he wants to say that none of that is true because This is a corrosive issue of trust for every country and every business dealing with the Chinese government. How should other countries react? How should Australia, the US, the UK, countries with big Hong Kong expat populations, countries with just interests in democracy and and rules-based order, how should they react? Well, first off, I think we've got to see what is at stake here. Uh, This really is uh, at the heart of the global contest between authoritarian ways of governing and democratic ways of governing, which is why I think the parallels and differences between Hong Kong and the unrest in the US is so interesting. We'll talk about that a bit later. But we need to realise the stakes, and that is, uh, is freedom in an expansion mode or a contraction mode globally? And for those of us who believe personal freedom and democratic systems are the best way to manage and govern human life, it matters a lot to us what happens in Hong Kong. So first, that perspective is important, and then realising that we're not powerless. Uh, So uh, these are international commitments that Beijing has made. Well, let's take those international commitments seriously, and let's support the UK in taking all the actions that it can uh, through UN bodies and through international court systems to hold Beijing to the commitments that it made. And let's look at what we can do to support the people of Hong Kong. Uh, That probably means 
things like the UK government is considering, like giving paths to citizenship for people of Hong Kong. Um, we did that back in 1989 with mm. uh, Chinese citizens at the time of Tiananmen Square, the massacre that Beijing uh, conducted of its own people. So paths to citizenship in Australia, that gives an alternative uh, for the people in Hong Kong and will allow them to res resist the kind of coercion that Beijing is putting in place. You mentioned the situation in the US as well. I mean, we're seeing the worst of America in those images. How does it fit in that global contest of authoritarianism and democracy when you see those sorts of images coming out of the uh, greatest democracy in the world, as it likes to call itself? Well, I suppose the simple uh, comparison is to say uh, both on the streets of Hong Kong and on the streets of US cities, we're seeing police violence. And so these two systems are the same, aren't they? Uh, but that would be a fundamental mistake because we've got to look at the drivers of unrest in both those places and we've got to look at the responses. And on the drivers, the reason that there's violence on the streets of Hong Kong is because millions of Hong Kong people have gone onto the streets calling for their freedoms to be maintained and calling for an inquiry into police violence that has been used against peaceful protesters. Beijing and the Hong Kong authorities led by Carrie Lam have absolutely resisted that and their response has been to double down on the violence and, uh, in fact, to arrest people earlier before they can even uh, group together as peaceful protesters. So the answer has been more state power and more violence. The situation in the US is quite different because the root cause there is a driving need for political change, particularly in the treatment of African-Americans, but also, I think, on the back of the clear inequities that have been exposed, whether it's about healthcare or employment, by the impact of COVID-19 in America. So it's kind of exposed a set of vulnerabilities and inequities that a whole lot of Americans now want addressed. And they're calling for change in how the state uses police against its citizenry. And the American response has been um, multifaceted because that's how democracies work. So already we're seeing local jurisdictions, city jurisdictions, state jurisdictions, agreeing that they need to reform the police and prevent further use of violence like we saw with the death of George Floyd. So the response in America is to start to get at some of the root causes the response from Beijing and the Hong Kong authorities has been to deny the root cause and double down on the violence. And I think that's a, a very large distinction. That's what we hope to see in a democracy, isn't it? A response for, for, to calls from ch for change from people. Although it's messy. And you can <laughs> see, uh, what did Winston Churchill say? Something about democracy is a terrible system, but it's the best one that humans have invented. <laughs> and I think you can see that in America right now. Uh, but there's another defining difference, which is as powerful as a US president might be, they're a democratically elected leader. Uh, their term of office has a limit to it, subject to re-election, and even then you can only serve two terms. And also there are other sources of power and other voices that can speak up and oppose capricious acts of the executive. None of that is true in Beijing, and unfortunately it's less and less true uh, in the political leadership and um, executive apparatus of Hong Kong. So we're seeing a whole lot of different voices and centres of power in America, whether it's those mayors, 
a local police forces, states, a governors and Congress that are able to constrain and change the, the path that President Trump might like to take. And we're seeing none of that in Beijing or on Hong Kong. Thank you very much, Michael. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Kelsey. Finally, Leanne Close, head of ASPE's counterterrorism program, speaks to Stephen Kestevens, president of the International Association of the Chiefs of Police, about police reform in the United States in light of the current protests and how the systemic issues could be addressed to rebuild trust and support between police and their communities. Well, hello and welcome to this ASPE podcast. My name's Leanne Close and I'm the head of ASPE's counterterrorism program. I'd like to welcome our guest, Stephen R. Cass-Stevens, who's the president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Welcome, Stephen. Welcome, thank you. Uh, I thought it might be helpful for our audience if you could just start by providing a little bit of an overview of what the IACP is and the work that you undertake with the very large number of chiefs of police across the US. Absolutely. So IACP, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, is the largest and the oldest professional law enforcement organization in the world. We've been in existence since 1893, and we currently have over 31,500 members in 165 countries. Our goal is to assist law enforcement agencies of any size and any type uh, with everything from policy, procedure, training, leadership development, and uh, we're a we're a catch-all resource for any law enforcement. So uh, obviously right now there's a significant focus on the civil unrest across the U.S., which has also gained momentum right around the world following the tragic death of Mr. George Floyd uh, in Minneapolis, Minneapolis on the 25th of May. Throughout this period, I know that you sent out several really powerful and heartfelt posts on the IACP website. Just wondering if you could outline some of what you said and describe what the IACP is doing to support police in their communities right now. Well, uh, first and foremost, uh, my very first message was every law enforcement officer agrees that the video that we saw of the tragic death of Mr. Floyd uh, was horrific. And one of my first statements was that any law enforcement officer in this country who didn't think that that was horrific should turn in their badge right now because uh, that, that um, is the problem that we see with uh, our profession is even though we've got over 850,000 law enforcement officers in the U.S. alone, people paint our profession with a broad brush and one officer that does something bad affects every one of us. Yeah. So apart from the obvious issues that you just sort of touched on there around the abuse of power by some individual officers and the resultant death of Mr. Floyd, what are some of the reasons you believe um, have caused this growing divide that's coming between the police and many in their communities? Well, sadly, it's, uh, it's something that we've been talking about for years. And I think as a profession, we've improved in this area. And by that, I mean police community relations. And the majority of law enforcement agencies in this country, I believe, do an outstanding job in building relations with their communities, but there are still a portion of various sizes, small and large, who have failed in this area. And those agencies who fail to develop those positive relationships will feel that when something bad happens in their community. And um, I know this is a really big question to ask you, but what do you think are some of the systemic issues 
that need to be focused on now so that we can improve um, those relationships and how we can how we can actually build that trust and support of the institution of policing well it's uh it's the perfect question because these are exact same things that I discussed in my meeting at the White House yesterday with President Trump and Vice President Pence and Attorney General Barr. And I discussed four priorities that the IACP has been talking about for some time. And I can touch on each one of those briefly here. Thank you. Number one was our national consensus policy on use of force. This is something the IACP developed in 2017. And by consensus, I mean it was with IACP the Fraternal Order of Police, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, and seven other national entities, we agreed on a consensus policy on use of force that should be the gold standard for all law enforcement agencies in this country. And interestingly, part of that use of force policy was an absolute prohibition on chokeholds. And chokeholds should never be used unless deadly force is authorized. And it still astounds me that there are some law enforcement agencies today who don't have that standard. So that was the first thing that we discussed. The second thing that we discussed was establishing a national police officer clearinghouse. And this is a clearinghouse of police officers who have been fired for due cause. And that officer should be prevented from leaving one state and going to another state and getting another job as a police officer in another state. Something like this does not exist, and we agree that is a good change. The third thing we discussed is already in place, but it's voluntary and not mandatory, and this is the FBI's National Use of Force Database. This was established about three years ago, and this is a clearinghouse for every law enforcement agency to report use of force by police officers. But it's only as good as the data that's entered, and right now it's voluntary, and we only have 40% of the law enforcement agencies in this country who are submitting data. Well, the data currently being submitted is of no use because what's important is for those agencies who aren't using force to also report those months where there are zero uses of force because that really tells the full story. So our request was for Congress to make this mandatory for all law enforcement agencies, same as it's mandatory for police agencies in this country to report their crime data to the FBI. So that's our third ask. And the last one was two-pronged. It's to develop national standards and policy for discipline and termination of officers, and to also standardize basic academy police training across the country. I'm, I find it hard to believe that in 2020, we still have 50 standards for police training. All 50 states have their own standards for basic academy training. That's really hard to believe. That's such a good point because, as you indicated, with 850,000 police across the states, 18,000, I think it is, identified uh, police agencies and services. It's really difficult, I think, to get that standardization and consistency across whether it's um, how to engage with the community regulations, laws, de-escalation of conflicts, as you mentioned there. Just wondering, how do you, with those strategies in mind that um, hopefully we'll be able to really um, push and enforce throughout the US, how do you engage with the community and get them involved in developing some of those ideas? Well, I, I challenged uh, community members uh, on several uh, TV station interviews today, 
And I told them, I said, no matter what community you're in, small, medium, large, state, county, municipal, if you are not satisfied with the law enforcement agency in your community, um, this is a responsibility of the citizens as well. Demand a meeting with your police chief. Ask to see what their use of force policy is. Demand to meet with your mayor and ask those same questions because law enforcement is teamwork between your community and your police department. And we both have a responsibility. I've seen in the recent media in the last couple of days, there's been a lot of calls from commentators, um, current forming serving police prosecutors, others for a variety of reviews. And one very simplistic notion is around defunding police and pushing money to other services. So just wondering if you give some of your views on on that concept. Um, That is a great question, and I have a couple of comments on that. Um, Number one, citizens and certain groups have been demanding for years that police officers need more use of force training, more de-escalation training, more training on dealing with mental health, more training on dealing with LGBTQ community, more training dealing with substance abuse, and that all costs money. And if you want the best training for your local police department, you have to invest in that training. So defunding takes us in the opposite direction. So that's number one. Number two, the problem that law enforcement and IECP has been bringing forward for the last 10 years is since the 1970s, our country has defunded social services. So all those agencies that used to deal with drug abuse and mental health issues and homelessness in the past have been defunded, and all of those social issues have been dumped on the doorstep of law enforcement. And so should we have more money towards social services? Absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, There was an interesting statistic that I I told uh, quite a few reporters today. In 1965, the country, the United States, was half the population that it is right now, and we had 600,000 hospital beds to treat people with mental illness. Today, we are twice that population, and we have less than 60,000 beds. That's unbelievable to me. And so what we've done is we've criminalized mental health. Mm. Three largest mental health institutions in our country, Cook County Jail in Chicago, Los Angeles County Jail in California, and Rikers Island Prison. And as you say, you then overlay that um, defunding already um, in mental health and and treatment for health issues. There's also the overlay of drug and alcohol abuse, where the police are often the first call to to deal with those situations as well. Exactly. And, uh, you know, the The cries of both defunding police or abolishing police um, sound really good for sound bites for the media. The end of the day is what happens when we have our next active shooter. Another um, key issue that I've sort of been looking at a little bit um, and has come to the fore, I think, in looking at the media around the protest actions and some of their behaviours, but also just the, the presence of police, not just in uh, the US, but also around the world that we've seen. There's this concept of the militarization of policing and the fact that probably due to some of those funding aspects you talked about there, Stephen, in terms of police agencies, some of them very small in the US, having to go and se- seek out funds or support or other things uh, like funding for the military, training for equipment, 
for the provision of those sorts of things. I know in the States there's a very strong um, policy around the military providing those things to the police. What are your views on that uh, policing, sort of turning into a bit of a quasi-military service or force again? Well, it's interesting because the IACP did a, a study about three years ago when there was complaints back then about the quote-unquote militarization of law enforcement in this country and how there's a program where police departments can get free equipment from the military. What we found was the greatest percentage of equipment that law enforcement agencies were getting from the military was furniture and gas masks. It wasn't tanks. It wasn't large vehicles. It wasn't bazookas. It was simple equipment like that. Now, the very large agencies, um, Chicago, LA, New York, they do have some of the military equipment, but that's because they have experienced barricaded subjects and active shooters. And that's the type of equipment you need to protect both your officers and your citizens. Okay. And uh, there's also some really strong legislation around uh, recruitment of people from the military. And I know there was another uh, review that the IACP undertook in terms of recruitment strategies, making sure that there was as much diversity in police services there could be. Just wondering what um, the IACP is seeing what you're seeing now in relation to that sort of issue. Yeah, that's something that uh, law enforcement here have struggled with for the last 10 years is uh, recruitment and retention. And it's not just uh, recruiting and retention of minorities, but it's recruiting and retention of any good law enforcement candidates. Um, we've seen over the last 10 years a significant drop in the number of applicants for police officer. And my agency alone, 10 years ago, would get 800 to 1,000 applications for two open positions, and now I get less than 80. So it's not uh, a recruiting issue completely. It's people are looking for other lines of work. And so we have started looking towards the military because people already have certain training and they have developed certain skills that are helpful in law enforcement. Uh, probably one of my final questions is just around um, some of the aspects you talked about there with the president and vice president uh, and the attorney. You've got quite a number of reviews, and I know the chiefs of police, we've seen some of the really powerful um, images of them kneeling or working with their communities. So there'll be a lot of work that goes in behind implementation of these strategies, and IACP will work with the chiefs to help them. What are some of the review and oversight mechanisms that you want to see put in place to make sure that they're not just words on a page right now, they're actually implemented? Well, there has to be some accountability, absolutely. Um, one of the things I discussed yesterday with uh, President Trump was uh, our police accreditation model. There are a lot of law enforcement agencies that aren't accredited, and if they were accredited, they wouldn't have some of the issues that uh, we have seen recently because accreditation requires you to have updated policies and procedures and training and equipment, and you are audited every two to three years. So you wouldn't see law enforcement agencies that have use of force policies that date back to the 1980s. Right. 
So we honestly could talk about this topic all day, but and I know that you've been um, pulled from pillar to post talking to a lot of different groups over the last week or two. So thank you very much, President Cass Stevens, for being with us today and giving us your insights on these issues. Really do appreciate your time. And I certainly wish you and all the communities across the US and the police services um, all the best as you move forward on this pathway to healing and, and rebuilding. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to talk and uh, I'm honored to be your guest. Thank you so much. That's all we have time for this week on Policy, Guns and Money. Thank you for listening and thank you to all our guests for joining us this week. As always, you can tweet us at aspi underscore org and share your thoughts on this episode. We will be back with another episode next week. Thanks.